Good morning again. Glad to be here. As I said earlier, we're in Isaiah chapter 8, and if you borrowed a Bible from the ushers today, that's on page 572. All right, I know. But last week I did get somebody when I said, hey, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. So I thought I'd try it again. But then I was alerted that there have been some people that take these pew Bibles home with them. So if you stole a Bible, then you're, you're uh, also in page 572. You know, we got to make some jokes because uh, it's hard to do this via distancing, right? It's a challenge to gather digitally. Um, I know that some of you, as you're live streaming, you get to see the comments of other people. And uh, after the first song, I try and check in with a few people. But it's hard. It's, it's a challenge not to know who's here and, and who's not here. It's, a, it's hard to not see your faces. So just please know you're missed, uh, you're loved, and uh, the, the things that we do to ask you to check in and comment, those things are all about knowing you're okay and knowing you're around and that we are in some way caring for you. And so I hope you've been receiving the phone calls from our leaders, the text, emails, whatever it's been. Uh, I hope you're checking in and and we just want to care for you. And just please know that. Um, we're in a, a series where we're headed back into the final piece of Isaiah. And so Isaiah is a book with 66 chapters in it. It is a large book in the Old Testament. It is one of the most profound books in the Old Testament as it preaches Jesus in incredible ways written about 800 years before Jesus was born. Now, there's some dating things that we typically talk about, and I even catch myself kind of stumbling through saying them when we're in the middle of a message. But here's, here's the setting, is Isaiah, about 2,800 years ago, gets this word from God, a series of things to tell the people of God over a span of time. And as we're going to see, as we did last week, that the kind of the overarching idea is that God's people aren't living the way God has called them to live. And so if you just push pause right there on the Old Testament 2,800 years ago people of God and you fast forward to today, clearly the relevance is here, right? That we as the people of God are, are called to live in a specific way. In fact, the, the main idea for today is living distinctly as God's people. So God calls people of faith, you and I, those of us that call ourselves Christians, God calls us to live differently than the rest of the world. Christians are to ask ourselves how influenced by the culture around us, by the world we live in, how influenced we are. And then, of course, how do we return to God in the places where we've gone astray? And so that is the story of Isaiah, as Isaiah the prophet, and a prophet is just someone who speaks God's words with God's authority, God's truth with God's authority. That's what a prophet does. And so he goes to the people and as he speaks to them, God also uses his setting to tell of the Savior to come in Jesus roughly 2,000 years ago. An incredible book because the portrayals of Jesus are so clear and the depictions of Jesus are so accurate that people, even up to almost 100 years ago, were challenging the authenticity of Isaiah because it was just too spot on, if you will. Until, as we've talked about before, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found and there was an entire intact copy of Isaiah that was dated long before Jesus was born. And so Isaiah is a powerful book. It's, it's, a, it's a, a, a book where God shows his validity and reliability and power and might in proclaiming what will happen 
even hundreds of years out, and then making it happen exactly as he said. And so that's what we will see. And so we're recapping that so that when we dive in in chapter 54 and cover the last 12, 13 chapters, that we don't miss the entire first 53 that give us background. And I know many of you are joining us uh, new this year, maybe even during coronavirus time, right? That, that you didn't hear the messages of 2019 where we covered the vast majority of Isaiah. And so we're backing up, going through it, and we're working on passages that will get us caught up. Today's a unique passage in Isaiah 8. It is a passage I didn't fully teach. I had taught all of seven, and then the first few verses of Isaiah 8, because it's the fulfillment of that famous verse that we always hear at Christmas time, that a, a virgin shall conceive and bear a child. And as prophecy often does in the Old Testament, it has a near-time fulfillment that fulfills it partially, and yet it is fully fulfilled in Christ. And so I got all the way up into the first verses of this, talked about the fulfillment of the prophecy, and then paused, and then we went to next, the, the next chapter for the next week. So today I want to cover a passage we didn't do. It's Isaiah 8, and it starts, in, I'm going to pray, and we will get started in verse 1. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you, we thank you. It is you that we're here for. It is you that entered into our story, into human history. Jesus, you came in and you lived the life that you have called me to live and everyone listening to live and every human being throughout history, the life you called us to live, and, and, and we have not lived it right. We have not been faithful to God. We have not been a faithful God's people, just like the people in Isaiah's day. And so you entered into our story, into human history, and you lived the life we were called to live, and then you died a death in our place to fulfill the promises of God that God would cover our sin if we would only place our trust and our faith in you. To live our lives with you as number one, Jesus. And so it's you that we are here for. You died, and then you rose again, giving us new life. It's your power that we live in, the power of your spirit that you gave us after you ascended back to the throne so you could be our king and our Lord. Jesus, you're the reason we gather and so, Jesus, I pray that you would meet us today, that you would speak today. Let me get out of the way. Jesus, speak, please. We desire to hear your voice. We desire to be your people. And that will call us to change. And so you will have to empower that in us. Through your gospel, apply through your spirit to glorify God. And so, Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Isaiah chapter 8, we're going to pick up in verse 1. It says, then the Lord said to me, this is Isaiah writing, then the Lord said to me, take a large tablet and, tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Mayor Shahal Hashbaz. I don't know how you say that, but it sounds good, right? And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jerobachiah, and attest for me. Uh, this is God saying, listen, here's what I will do. I, I want you to write this name down on a tablet, and I want you to get others to testify that that's what I said to you. Now, Sakile, I apologize. I have to get a, a water bottle, so forgive me as I walk off the camera really quick. Okay, all right. No, really, we know what we're doing, I swear. Back on track. So God says to Isaiah, hey, write this name down, write it on a tablet, get these people to make sure they see it, and then I will make it happen in my power. So again, God tells what's going to happen. He says, get witnesses so that when I do it, it will be validated that I said it first and then I did it. Only God can cause the future. Only God can say what will happen and then cause it to happen. And that's part of God's point later in this passage. There is no other way 
to look forward into the future and control it outside of God. No human being can do that. No other faith system even tries to do that. No one else predicts the future and waits for it to come true. God repeatedly says, here's what I will do, whether it be in a year, as we're going to see today, or in generations to come, and then God does it. And so that is the power of God. That is God verifying that he is God and, and we are not. So telling the future in advance is what I would call that. God tells his people, this is the slide for you, he, what he is about to do so that they will know that it's him that is doing it. God uses this as the most historic, the most important historic witness to his word. Here's what I mean. God will say it, and then God will accomplish it, giving validity to his word. There are things that are still yet to happen. The eternal reign of Jesus face to face, his final return. There are things that are still yet to happen. But for the most part, the vast majority of the Bible has been fulfilled. The promises about Jesus have all come true, and they were promised some thousands of years in advance, some hundreds of years in advance. And then some, even as Jesus, before Jesus came on the scene, in his own generation by John the Baptist. And so as God speaks, God makes it happen so that you and I know that when God speaks today, that God is the authority, that God has the power, that God is worth living for. And so that's our message today, and that's how God shows his power. So verse 3, and I went to the prophetess, this is Isaiah speaking, I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son, that's probably his wife, and then the Lord said to me, call his name Meher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. So here's what God is saying. Write down this name. Put, put it on a, tab a tablet. Have people see it. And then I'm going to cause your wife to have a son. You're going to have that son. And now when he has that son, you're going to name that son that name. Right? And then God says this. And, and before he is able to say, my mother or my father, right? Imagine just in the next year, right? But instead of that, he gives a very clear timeline before your child can say, mom, dad, or cry out your name. Before that takes place, I will execute judgment on the people. That's what he's saying. Here's the timeline, and it's very clear. And here's what I'm going to do. So Isaiah's son is not only a fulfillment of prophecy, the one I alluded to before, but Isaiah's son and his son's life is also a form of prophetic timeline. Now, when we hear the words prophecy or prophetic, it is not always future telling. In fact, many of the, I would say probably most of the prophetic statements in the Bible are speaking into modern day people's lives at the time. Yeah, they have relevance to us too. And in some cases, God tells the future as he does so to validate who he is, but not all. And so when we see people who speak prophetically, if you will, they're speaking God's truth with God's authority, whether it be for the moment, for a little bit into the future, or for way into the future. And so Isaiah has some of that. He speaks to the people of God right now saying, listen, here's the timeline, and then God's going to execute judgment. And so when God proclaims this, there's always a sense of you have time to respond to me. You have time to return. Biblically stated, you have time to repent, to turn from whatever is displeasing to God and run towards God, and he will welcome you. 
And so that's what God is always doing. He always gives that timeline. Here's the way you can return to me. Verse 5, it says, The Lord spoke to me again. God speaks. Isaiah is a, a book about God speaking. Now, that's not something we're super comfortable with 2,800 years later, in the year 2020. We're not super comfortable with the way God speaks. In fact, we've been talking about this a little bit in church, that, that for the most part, Christians are unfamiliar with, and this is American Christians, if you're listening on some other part of the planet, this may not apply to you as much, but American Christians are very uncomfortable with and do not know how God speaks to them. And in that sense, a lot of times Christians become dependent upon a pastor or a church or a televangelist or whatever, books, the books they read or whatever they take in. And again, that can be good as long as the information is good, but it can also be problematic. What if somebody is wrong? How, how would you possibly know if you don't know how to hear the voice of God? And again, I'm not always saying audibly. Uh, I'm not even saying most of the time audibly. I'm just saying how God speaks to us. Here's what I would point out. God is speaking. Isaiah is hearing. Isaiah is listening and doing what God has called him to do. That ought to be the model for us, discerning what God is saying to us, hearing it, and acting on it. That is what living as a Christian should look like. And so God is speaking, and God desires to speak to you and I today. And again, God most often validated Scripture so that we would have Scripture as our clearest voice from God. And yes, we have the Holy Spirit inside us, leading us, helping us, discerning the truths of God in applicational ways in our lives. Does God want me to take this job or marry this person that clearly are not just in Scripture? But then the Bible becomes God's reliable witness because he tells what happens, and then he causes it to happen, sometimes near or far away, letting you know his word is trustworthy. We're in a, we're in a small group curriculum right now. We've got about 110, 115 people signed up to do a curriculum called Rooted, and one of the things that Rooted really presses into is learning how to hear from God, learning how to discern what God is saying and building upon that. Another is, uh, is how do we walk in times of suffering? And those two things are typically very uncomfortable in the American church. And so what we need to see is God speaks. Hebrews 1 says this, long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these days, these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. The author of Hebrews reminds us that God has been speaking, and we have it written down. We have a reliable word of God, and he was writing about what you and I as Christians might call the Old Testament, the first two-thirds of our Bible. But then Jesus entered into human history, and Jesus lived and spoke, and his disciples captured that. And we have four different accounts of that. And as that is canonized, then we look at the, the writers like the author of Hebrews or Paul who writes the New Testament letters, and we have that. We have a historical, reliable witness to what God is saying to us. Not only that God would lead us every day, but we have God's word. And in the Western American church, we're all too dependent upon anything else other than God's word. One of the things we're going to press into as a church is that we would know how to lean into hearing from the Spirit, hearing from God's Word, how to discern where God is leading us, that we might become stronger in our faith. So back to Isaiah verse 6, it says this, because 
This people has refused the waters at Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Raisin and the sum of Remaliah. So here's the problem in this passage. As Isaiah goes to the people, as, as God speaks to Isaiah, and Isaiah speaks to the people on God's behalf, God's words, God's authority on God's behalf to the people of God. He says, listen, you have not embraced what I have given you, the provision, right? The waters of Shiloh, Shiloh is, is really an image of how God is providing for them. And so just kind of meta-narrative, big picture, if you will. God has created a people and given them a land. God has blessed them and called them to walk in a certain way, to live in a certain way, to obey him in a certain way. And God has spoken to them, loved them, cared for them, provided for them. And they have wandered off. And the problem, the problem with the people of God 2,800 years ago and our problem here in America is that we end up looking more like the culture than we do like God's people. We live less distinctly and more in common. We look like everyone around us. And I would just submit to you right now, we're in the midst of a crisis, a global pandemic, and whether or not you think it's as big as it's being made of or, it, or not, wherever you are on the spectrum, just understand this, when we look at, and social media is probably our best window in, when we look at social media, do Christians look any different than non-Christians right now? And it's, it's, it's interesting that both sides of the political spectrum have their own tendencies, and Christians fall on both sides of the political spectrum, but do those Christians look more like the people in their political party or the people that they listen to, the social commentators, the political commentators? Do people today look more like Jesus or more like culture? And I would suggest that we tend a lot more towards culture. That was the problem 2,800 years ago. He says, you've refused my provision. And instead, you rejoice over Raisin and Remaliah, the outside, the outlying, the, the villages or towns or, or, or countries near them. You look more like them rather than being my people dependent upon me. So here's a note for you, identifying ourselves. It is important as we look at the people of God thousands of years ago to figure out how we have similar struggles. How do we reject God's provision for us? That's our question for us today. How do we look like the world around us and not like Jesus? How do we turn then and take those things where we are off base and how do we lean into Jesus? And so I would say this, a lot of times the propensity among Christians is to hear something like this and try and change the world what we need to do is hear this and try and change ourselves. And when I say try and change ourselves, please don't misunderstand me that we're just some moralistic kind of work harder, try harder kind of thing. I mean surrender ourselves more fully, more fully to Christ and let the gospel, the power of what Jesus accomplished on our behalf, apply to us through the Holy Spirit, glorifying God. Let that transform us. But we should be a people that look more like Jesus than we do our Republican or Democrat friends, our Californian friends, our U.S. friends, whatever it might be. Do we look like Jesus and where we don't? How do we, in, how do we submit and change ourselves, not worry about the world around us? They will follow us if we look like Jesus. But we must first then turn and follow Jesus. Verse 7, Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, the same provision that God gave them is now going to flood them, if you will. And it's an image. He says, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks. This, this crisis or flood that is coming 
will be a military victory over them. God said, for you not listening to me, for you looking more like the culture around you, and instead of looking like the way I've called you to look, rather than that, being more like the culture, rejecting my provision and trying to seek the provision of those around you, right? Rather than, and we'll get some examples here that are relevant to us today, but rather than that, you've been worldly. And so because of that, I'm giving you notice I'm going to conquer your country. I'm going, to, I'm going to send an invading nation in to conquer your country. Now, this, this ties to us that our crisis might be a virus. Our, our crisis might be economic. Our crisis might be other things today. This one, particularly, is an army. And, and I know we're not in that place yet, or, or probably won't be, but crisis is crisis. The flood that's coming is the flood that's coming. The flood we have to deal with is our own crisis. And so it's relevant as we look at them. And again, I never got a chance to teach this message. Well, I, not that I didn't have a chance. I didn't teach this message when we were going through Isaiah in 2019. And I, I caught this passage and I thought, and this is super relevant for today. This is where we live. We're in the midst of crisis. Again, one way or another, whether you think the virus is the crisis or the economy is the crisis, or, you, or I think both are the crisis, right? How do we do that? How, how do we live with crisis? How do we live with struggle? How, how do we live with suffering? How do we live and look like Jesus and not like the culture? Isaiah 8, 8 says this, and it will sweep on into Judah, the people of God, and it will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Here's what God is doing. He's saying there's discipline coming, if you imagine a flood rising up, now he's told them it'll be a military problem they will have, but as you, the image is a flood, right? And so he says it will rise all the way to your neck. And what he's saying is some will survive, all will struggle. And I think we can hear that today. Some will survive, most will survive today, I would assume. Some will struggle and some will be lost. It's like this. It will come all the way up to your neck, but he's saying this because the discipline isn't just punitive. The, the discipline is intended to restore people. Like when we take our children and we, and we discipline them, they say, listen, don't touch the, the electric socket, and they go do it anyhow, and then we, we discipline them. It's not just because we want to steal their joy and their fun. It's because we want to prevent them from hurting themselves. We don't want real tragedy, real struggle, real crisis to take their life. And so what we do is we say, hey, listen, here's the discipline, right? And that's why the word discipline is used. It is, it is discipline if you try and discipline yourself to a particular set of eating habits, if you discipline yourself to learn a martial art, a musical instrument or something, or you discipline yourself to study the word of God and pray and seek God's face daily. Those are disciplines. But sometimes when we fall out of that discipline, God disciplines us, corrects us. The purpose is to restore us. The purpose is to bring us back. And he says that it'll come all the way up to your neck. In other words, Judah, you will lose some people. You will lose many people. You won't lose all people. We need to hear that today. Are we seeing our crisis? Are we seeing our struggles? Are we even seeing our sufferings as ways that God can use to draw us nearer to him? And I'm not tying a one-to-one -one thing where God is causing the virus. I'm not saying that. But in the midst of this, we can Learn the lessons of others. When God spoke clearly and disciplined his people, we need to hear 
we also need the discipline to be restored back to God. We need to learn. We need to know. We need our flaws pointed out. We need to be drawn nearer to God. Let this season be that. If there's been an overarching message from the time we went digital to now, seven weeks, eight weeks, I don't know what it's been now. It's been this. Let us draw nearer to God. Us, not the world. Let's not worry about everybody else. Us, let us draw nearer to God. And in drawing near to God, we will attract the world to Jesus. God is saying the same thing in Isaiah. So don't confuse discipline with hell or anything eternal. Discipline is discipline aimed at restoration. Verse 9, be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. He says that twice to make a point. Be broken is a call for repentance, a call for the people of God to submit to God. He says, or if you want to strap on your armor, I will beat you. I will overcome you. You will be shattered. How do we as Christians today tend to act when things are challenging? Do we press into God? Do we obey, submit, and pray? Or do you find us doing what the world around us is doing? Blaming other people, calling for this, protesting, doing this, doing that, believing all the, the stories online. Do you see us turning in obedience to Jesus? Do you see us seeking him in prayer? Do you see us being a more submitted people? Do you see yourselves that way? Or do we just look like the world around us? That's really the question I want to ask today. Do we just look like the world around us? That was the sin of the people. That was the, the problem of the people. That's why God is allowing this army to come in and destroy them. Verse 10, take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. Taking counsel together is about people attempting to solve the crisis in their own human understanding, right? It's, it's them seeing an Assyrian army proclaiming to be coming, them seeing an army that's much greater than them, and trying to figure out how they will solve the problem. And what we will do, we won't cover all this, but what will happen in the book of Isaiah is they will try and make allegiances with other pagan countries, other countries that don't worship God. They will try and make a pact with Egypt that will backfire in their face. Here's what they're doing. They're trying to find ways around returning to God. They're trying to find human solutions to what is, in essence, a spiritual problem they're having with a physical crisis. And that's something that we as a church can hear. Are we relying on human wisdom, human counsel, uh, human leadership? Is that where we're finding our comfort, our hope? Is that where we're finding our struggle, our desire to be different, our desire to disobey? What, where are we finding that? Or are we being pressed in nearer to God? Verse 11, for the Lord spoke thus to me, Isaiah says, with his strong hand upon me, and he warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. We could spend a lot of time here, but we won't. Uh, conspiracy is this. It is this fear of something, so we draw conclusions that what we see are not what is real. And, and I have never seen so many conspiracy theories online as I have right now. 
that what this is all made of, or this is caused by this. And I, I just, it is amazing to try and follow. I've just started to disregard those things. But no matter if this is you, if you buy into a specific line of thought, it's an economic conspiracy, it's a viral conspiracy, it's a conspiracy to sell this particular pharmaceutical drug, or, or if you just think that this is whatever. If you're thinking anything other than what is being said, and I'm not saying that everybody that you hear from on TV or on the news or anywhere else is honest. I'm not even suggesting that. But if you buy into the conspiracy line, here's what God says. And I'm going to read it so you don't shoot the messenger, right? Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear nor be in dread. Conspiracies are bought into because they feed people's fears. If you are here in America and your, your fear is a loss of your rights, a loss of constitutional rights, right to assemble, right to bear arms, right to this, right to that, right to freeze, if you buy into the conspiracies, there's a fear that lies behind it. Conspiracies are built on fears. And what God is saying, don't engage in that. Argue with God, not me. Don't engage in conspiracies. Don't buy in and let your fears take hold of you. And I know some of you are sitting there saying, no, I believe this thing over here that people say is a conspiracy theory and I'm not afraid of it. But it is. It's built on fears. Fear of something drives conspiracy. Here's why God says not to buy into that, not to engage in conspiracies. It's not because they're not true. It's not because they're all false. And I'm not suggesting anything is true or false in this moment. It's because God doesn't, God's people should never fear anything but God alone. That our trust and our security is in a God greater than any fear we could insert. The command, fear not, resides all throughout scripture, right? Fear not, be anxious for nothing, fear not, do not be afraid. That is repeated because we have nothing to fear. Because if God is our God, we have nothing to fear. Now, God calls us to live in a specific way. That doesn't mean you have nothing to fear, so go live any way you want to. That's what the world would do. That's what the world is doing. That's what much of the church is doing. Fear not means don't buy into the conspiracies. Don't live the way of the world. Don't trust in the words of the people. Don't trust in the plans of the people. Trust in God alone. So walking as the world does is a note for you. In crisis, God calls us to be different than the world around us, to rely on God and not on man, to keep our minds from conspiracies because God dispels all fear, to trust that God is control and give nothing else our faith. Give nothing else your heart, that place inside you where you put things that, that mount up and steal the place where God should be. Let God dispel all fear. Trust in God and his provision, not in what we can do or what government can do or how we can overcome what government, just trust in God is what God is saying. Don't buy into the hype. Verse 13, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. The Bible will go on later in the New Testament tells us don't fear man. Fear God who can, who can punish you in this life and in the one to come, right? Don't fear humanity that only have power in this life. Don't fear that. Fear God alone. 
And that fear God alone does not mean we should be afraid to come before God. In the gospel, we have security to come before God. The gospel is, is, is simple in its essence, but profound in its implications. It's that God created us and loves us and called us to be in relationship, called us to be obedient to him. But with every disobedience, humanity past and our own, we have severed the relationship with God. And that relationship can only be restored through Christ, that Jesus came and entered into our story, into human history, and that Jesus lived the life that we're called to live and have failed. And that Jesus died a death in our place, a brutal death in our place. The very thing we covered at length on Good Friday in Isaiah 52 and 53. And this book proclaimed hundreds of years before it happened to Jesus. And then every detail came true. Jesus lived and died, was buried in a grave to cover our sins, and rose again three days later. That Jesus is alive today is the gospel and that we have nothing to fear. We can come before God in confidence that because of Christ, we stand there pure and clean. Not because of anything we get to add or we get to do, but because of Christ, we need not, we need not walk away from God or be pushed away by, by God, but we should draw near to God. The fear should be reverence. The fear should be understanding God is the only one that we need to be on our side. Not humanity, not economy, not medicine. That God alone is what we need. That we need to fear nothing else. It says this, verse 13, But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. You shall obey him, obey God. Right? Let him be your fear, and him be your dread. Let him alone. Let God alone be our fear, be our dread. So should we fear coronavirus? No, right? Should we fear economic destruction? No. Should, should we fear that this is a big conspiracy theory? No, and we shouldn't even give that any time. Should we fear that God can judge us in this life and the life to come? You bet. That should be it, and we should live in faithfulness to Christ, knowing that in Christ we stand before God, pure and righteousness, holy, Not, nothing we add, nothing we can do, but in Christ alone, Verse 14 says, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He, this is Jesus, will become a sanctuary, a place of redemption, a place of comfort, but he will be a stumbling block. And that, and that thing, the, the stumbling block to Judah and Israel is the same thing we run into. There's there's got to be a way we contribute to our own salvation. We can contribute to our own walk with God. And that's the stumbling block. No, we can't. That only Christ, Christ alone is our salvation. That Christ alone merits God's favor, not us. That God loves us because of Christ alone. Not because of anything I do or anything you do, but God loves us because of Christ alone. Verse 14, let's read that again. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense, a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, and a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Verse 15, and many shall stumble on it, and they shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Many will lose sight that there is only one way to God. And, and in a pluralist culture today that we live in, saying, you know, there's lots of ways to do this, God stands alone and says, no, Christ alone. That Jesus alone is the path back to God. And that is why we proclaim that gospel every week, and we, we call out with hearts of love to people, please, Listen, hear God's words, trust in Christ, 
there is nothing you can do. That idea that, like, oh, I'm going to heaven, I'm a good person. God would say, no, no, you're not. You're not. You're sinful, I'm sinful, we're all sinful, we're all broken, bad, wicked, evil. If we weren't, this world wouldn't be in the place it is. But we've all added to the sin globally and historically of this world. Christ alone is our salvation. Verse 16, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. This is Isaiah's words and here's what's gonna happen. Bind up the testimony and the teaching. Isaiah is going to write the rest of the book of Isaiah and then he's going to seal it up. He's going to give it to his students, his disciples. They will pass it on for another generation. 100 years later, this teaching will be opened back up to the people of God. It's closing down because they're not listening. Hear me, church, when I say this. In America, my greatest fear is that God will do this. That God will lift his hand off of us and say, you know what, you chose your own way. You wanted a political solution, get a political solution. You wanted to go your way, you wanted to hear your voice, you wanted your, you wanted your rights, your you wanted this, then, then here it is. I'll see in 100 years when people begin to repent. Greatest thing, I, I, the greatest problem I could see is losing the voice of God in the church in America today. I'm not suggesting that's what's going on. But I will, if, if, if this is the image, if, if God, when pleased by people, when people are obedient, has his hand right on them, when God is just, just like, like Isaiah said earlier, with his heavy hand upon me, if that's where we are when God is blessing us, where he protects us, he cares for us, if that's what it looks like, then for sure we're at least here. We're at least in this place where he's like, okay, listen, I've told you. You've got the entire Bible calling you to return to me, to not look like culture, and to look like Jesus, to, to live differently. For sure, he started to lift his hand off. If nothing else, he's for sure not right on top of us right now, but desires to be. Has he lifted his hand completely off? I'm, I'm not even going to go there. I don't think so. But if I were just to zoom out and look from God's perspective, sometimes I wonder why his hand's still anywhere near us. We look so much like the world we live in and so little like Jesus. I look so much like the world around me, so little like Jesus. The more I learn, the farther I find myself. But God always calls us to return. Discipline is always for the purpose of restoration. That God would have us return is the entire message. The, the entire book of all the books of the Bible, the entire Bible is about God's people running headlong into hell and away from God, and God scooping them back up, calling them to return. So the question is, are we listening? And I'll put this up on the screen for you. Are we any different today? Are we any different than the people 2,800 years ago? Or the 100 years that this goes silent until the book opens up, are we any different during our crisis today, do we not act the same as those around us? Do we hear Isaiah's words written thousands of years ago, and will we act in faith instead of in the flesh? Will we be different? I'm going to close right there. I'm just, I want to leave that with us. Are we listening is my question. Are we willing to obey authority because of our reverence for God, not because of our reverence for authority? Are we willing to trust that even if the conspiracies are real, 
that God is the only thing we need to fear? Are, are we willing to place our economics and our health, our, our fears and all our concerns, are we willing to place that in God's hands and know that his provision is enough? For the book of Isaiah, this is a pivot point where things go from bad to worse. In America, and let me back out of that. At Generations Church today, we have a, an option. We have the choice. We get to say, no, we're going to press into God, or no, we're going to stay going the same. That's up to us. It's up to each one of us. In, in, in the quiet of our hearts where the Spirit speaks, we have that calling. What will that look like? We'll press into that. But we have that calling. We have that question. We have that choice today. Will we lean into Jesus, or will we double down on the world? Are we listening? That's our question. Let's pray. Jesus, may we hear your voice. May you get through the hard-heartedness and stiff-neckedness of our, of our lives in America. May we move past the things that draw us off track. May we get through the hard-heartedness of disobedience and self, and may we hear your voice deep inside of us, calling us to return to you. For all of us, we have places we need to return for all of us, we have places we need to lay down, self that needs to get out of the way, culture that needs to get out of the way, things that we need to repent of, all of us. Your Bible says if we say we have no sin, we are lying, or that we make you to be a liar. And so when, since we know you're not lying, we must be. So we confess our sins to you, whatever they might be. I, I pray that all of us would just begin to confess our sins to God over the next days and weeks and hours and whatever to come. Let us be a people of repentance. God, change our hearts, fill our lives. Let us hear your voice. Let us follow your lead. Let us be a people that live so distinctly from culture that people begin to turn to us and ask us, hey, why so calm right now? Why so joyful? Why so much peace? And that our answers might be Jesus. Jesus is our joy, our comfort, our peace. He's where we place our faith. He's how we know we will we will find all our provision from God. So Jesus, we love you. We're here because of you. We desire to follow you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.